Okay, well, as always, thank you for being um, here. Thank you for making the time and, and setting aside uh, this part of your day and uh, making the sacrifices that you've made to, to be here. I know it's not easy on a Wednesday night, so thank you all. Okay, last week we kind of went over an outline that we're going to go through uh, for this class, and I want to go through it every, every Wednesday night probably, uh, just to kind of um, give you, again, I hate assigning memory work because that is scary to some people, but it's really only 11, 11 words, and I, I think, or maybe it's 12, I forget, I don't know, I didn't number them. Um, but I, I think that if you were to memorize something like this, it could really help you to memorize the story of, of God's plan of redemption and how he brought about salvation for humanity. So the first one we talked about last week was chosen. Uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and how the, the seed of Abraham was going to be the one through whom the nations would be blessed. Uh, yep, my clicker doesn't work very well. Uh, two is liberated. Three, that's what we'll talk about tonight. Three is wandering the wilderness. We'll talk about that next week. Four, victorious, conquest of Canaan. Five, lawless period of the judges, six ruled, seven united, eight divided, nine exiled, ten returned, and eleven waiting. And again, I'm just going to go through those each week, um, but, but as you're doing, many of you take a picture of it uh, and, and work on that. Just kind of memorize those 11, 11 topics, chosen, liberated, wandering, victorious, lawless, ruled, united, divile, divided, Exiled, returned, and waiting. And those, that's the outline of the whole, the whole story of the Old Testament, which brings us, of course, uh, to Jesus and to uh, who he is and what he's done. Because it's very important that we interpret the story of Jesus. Um, by the way, Tom has brought a recorder for us tonight. So I am, we are going to record this class. So if you want to go to a different, not that you have to go, but if you want to go to a different class uh, and, then, and then catch the recording later, you're more than welcome to. If you can't find a seat, um, you can, you're more than welcome to go to a different class and then catch the recording later. But um, it's very important that we interpret the story of Jesus in light of the story of Scripture. If we just say things like, Jesus saves us, what does that mean? Saves us from what? We say, well, it saves us from sin. Well, what is sin? And what does it mean to be saved from sin? Um, this, this terminology that we use, saved, redeemed, set free, we, we may take it for granted, but it's even possible that what we, what we mean when we say it, what we think that means, may not be exactly what the New Testament authors wanted us to to be thinking about, and it's not if it's not in light of the Hebrew Scriptures. Because when Paul, for instance, talked about Scripture, he wasn't talking about the Bible as we think of the Bible. He was talking about Genesis to Malachi. He was talking about what we would call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. And so it was these Scriptures that shaped Paul's thinking and Jesus' thinking and Peter's thinking and, and how they communicated and the story that Jesus is a part of. So it's really important that we get this story into our hearts and minds. I would, I would rather us 
know the story and be able to communicate the story than I would know a few handful of verses. It's not, nothing against memorizing verses. That, that, that can be great. Um, but, but it's more important that we understand the story of Scripture than necessarily just a few isolated texts that we sort of pull out of the story and sometimes use them uh, in ways that they weren't intended to be used. So let's kind of think through, before we even jump into tonight's lesson, just kind of the end of the book of Genesis. We have Abraham, and then Abraham has Ishmael first, but then God says, no, 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 you, you did your own thing there. Um, who, who's going to be the, the chosen son, the one through whom the seed promise is going to go? Isaac, right? So Abraham, and then Isaac, and then Isaac. The next chosen one is going to be Jacob, right? Jacob, and then Jacob has 12 sons. And those become the, the patriarchs. Those become the 12 tribes. Joseph is split in two, but, but we find Joseph really kind of becomes sort of the, the first one in the story that we think this, this guy might be a little bit different because everybody else in the story, every single part of it, we're studying Genesis on Sunday mornings, aren't we? And every story that we read, I hope that what we're thinking is this family, this, this family, this is the one you chose to bring about the salvation of the world, to bring blessings to all the nations of the world. This is the, the family that you chose to partner with. But even as we think that, it should give us a, an incredible amount of hope, shouldn't it? Because it, it says to us, if God chose this family to partner with, that means you can be his partner too. Because what you need is not perfection. What you need is the same faith that Abraham had, because God counted it, what? Righteousness. He declared that he is righteous, not based on Abraham's perfection, not because he slayed a dragon or climbed a mountain, but because he believed that God is a God who keeps his promises. And he trusted God and believed God. He, he, he was willing, of course, to do what God told him to do because of his belief. And God counted to, that to him as covenant faithfulness, as righteousness as justice as being a just man because he believed God and then from that belief and from those promises come all of these children until Joseph comes along and and really brings about salvation and even in Joseph we see this glimpse of the coming Messiah don't we we see one who we see the story over and over again but we see one who was betrayed by his brothers he was essentially murdered thrown into the pit, and then resurrected, right? He was resurrected, and then he was exalted to a place of power and glory, and he began to reign at the right hand of the most powerful person in the world. And, and as he began to reign, he saved not just his own people as they came for food, but he saved the nations as they came to Egypt. So in Joseph, we see this glimpse, but what happens to Joseph at the end of the story? He dies, just like everybody else. He doesn't continue to reign. He doesn't continue to save. But before he dies, even Joseph has hope, doesn't he? What does he tell the people before he dies about his own bones? Take them back to Canaan, right? Take them back to Canaan. Because at the end of the story, have they inherited the land like they were promised? No. Abraham? Nope. Isaac? Nope. Jacob? Nope. Joseph? Nope. They, the story of Genesis ends with them in Egypt. 
away from the promised land. The only thing the family owns back in Canaan is one cemetery plot. That's it, that they bought. God didn't give it to them, they bought it. And that's it. One cemetery, and that's it. They don't own the land yet, but Joseph has hope. And I think, even though the text doesn't necessarily say this, I think Joseph has hope in resurrection. Why else would he care about what happens to his bones? Take my bones back to Canaan. Because God is a God who keeps his promises, even to those who have died. And then, of course, the people of of Israel, Abraham's family is in Egypt, and they just keep growing and multiplying. Why? Why do they grow and multiply? The text doesn't necessarily say, but but why do they grow and multiply? God, right? It's God's blessings. They they were fruitful and they multiply. Look, if you got your Bible, we'll be in Exodus chapter 1. We'll start there. Exodus 1, 6 and 7. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. That's the same sort of blessing that God sent out Adam and Eve with, right? Be fruitful and multiply. The same blessing God sent Noah and his family out with. And now the same blessing is is happening to the people of Israel. They are exceedingly strong. The land is filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many for us and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. (coughs) Verse uh, 11, therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad, which This is pretty interesting, even from a historical standpoint, isn't it? That an enslaved people and an oppressed people would multiply greatly, but they did. They continued to be fruitful and multiply and spread. Why? Again, God is still blessing them, even in their oppression, even in their slavery. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard justice or hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So why did they do that? Why did they oppress them? Why did they make them slaves? Fear, right? They were afraid of them. And why were they afraid of them? There's a lot of them, right? Because of their numbers, because it was obvious that they were fruitful and they were multiplying. They were great numbers and they're afraid that if war breaks out, they're going to join our enemies against us. And so we have to make them our slaves. We had to keep them under our thumb. Now, again, they're afraid of them. If we sort of read the subtext here, they're afraid of them because they're multiplying and they're multiplying because God is with them. God is blessing them. God has not forsaken them. So Here they find themselves for hundreds of years in slavery. um, And this plan that the Egyptians have of enslaving them in order to make them weak, even that doesn't seem to have done the trick, right? Because even even in that, they, they still continue to multiply and they're even more terrified of them. So what's Pharaoh's new plan? Kill them, especially the males, right? Those are the ones that are going to be the warriors, so let's kill them. And so if, they're, if it's born a, a male, kill them. And of course, the, the midwives don't want to do that, and so they let them live, and they make up a lie about how they, oh, they, they had the baby before we got there. These, 
these Israelite women, these Hebrew women, they're so strong. They, they didn't even need us. The, the babies were born without us. And so these babies are born, but again, trying everything they can to destroy these people. Is there, is there a subtext there? That, that even though the forces of evil and darkness and, and the, the forces that are arrayed against God's people, even though they try everything they can. In fact, at the time, Egypt is the most powerful kingdom and empire in the world. And they're trying everything they can to keep these people down, to, to squash them. And yet, because God has chosen them, not because they're perfect, not even really because they're good, but because they're his. And he chose them. And because he chose them, he's blessing them. Because he has a plan for them, he's blessing them. And no matter what Egypt does, they cannot squash them. They cannot keep them from becoming a great people. So uh, there, there's one baby who is born in particular, who is Moses, right? And his mother puts him in a basket. And again, he is saved. In fact, he's He's rescued by the princess and is raised as, as a son in Pharaoh's house. Um, then Moses grows up. We won't read all of this, but Moses grows up and he's walking along. He's, he's kind of Egyptian royalty, but he's also a Hebrew. And he knows his Hebrew roots and his Hebrew origins. And, and he sees what? what? What does he see? What's that? Mistreatment. Mistreatment, right? He sees the Egyptians beating one of his Hebrew brothers. And so what does he do? He kills the Egyptian. He murders him. He kills the Egyptian. And he thinks, he thinks they're going to appreciate the fact that I've, I've stepped in on their behalf, right? And do they? No, they don't appreciate it at all. And in fact, Moses becomes a wanted man and has to flee. And so he flees away, and the people are still enslaved. And that's where we read, uh, look at uh, Exodus chapter 2, verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned, because of their slavery and cried out for help, their cry for rescue, their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. Again, when we think about saved, saved, maybe it's helpful to replace the word saved with rescue. We don't necessarily think about it in those terms because we just think about forgiveness from sins. And we'll talk about why that's good. Our salvation is forgiveness from sins. But we have to also interpret salvation in light of this story because that's what the New Testament does. The New Testament paints our story of salvation in, in this light, in light of the Exodus story. And just like the people of Israel are enslaved and they're crying out to God for rescue, God rescues them and God rescues humanity through them, through specifically the seed of Abraham, but I'm getting ahead of myself. They, they cry for rescue from slavery. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. I mean, look through that one more time. God heard, God remembered, God saw, God knew. Does that tell us a lot about God? that he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in chesed, steadfast love 
steadfast love. This is, this is so that you see this is the kind of God that he is, that God keeps his promises. He knows, he remembers, he hears, he sees. There's nothing that is done that God doesn't see. And if his chosen people are being mistreated and enslaved, God sees them, God knows them, God hears them, God remembers them. And so, of course, God calls Moses from the burning bush, right? Moses is away in Midian, and, and there's a burning bush, and Moses goes before it, and he bows down, or he takes off his shoes, he's on holy ground, and, and God speaks to Moses and tells him to do what? Go to Egypt, right? Go to Egypt. So he's sort of chosen Moses. There's another choosing. He's chosen Moses to go to Egypt and to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Release them so that they can come and worship me. And of course, Moses is really anxious to do this job, right? He's been waiting for the opportunity. No. He says, absolutely not. That sounds like a great plan, God. I think you should do that. Go for it. Sounds great. Awesome. Good plan. Just not me, right? I don't want to be the one to do it. And God proves to him over and over again that he will be with him and shows him signs. He empowers him to save his people. He empowers him to rescue his people. And I hope that we see as we go through this story of the Old Testament that over and over and over and over and over again, we see glimpse after glimpse after glimpse of Jesus. How God picks these different people anoints these different people, appoints these different people to act in a way to bring about blessing and salvation. And all along the way, you think, that guy? That guy? Or sometimes you think, that guy. Yes, that's the guy. And then he lets you down. And he disappoints you. Or like Joseph, he just dies. Over and over and over again. And so all the while, we're anticipating, yeah, but who's the seed Who's the seed of Abraham that's going to bring salvation, not just for Israel, but salvation and blessings for the whole world, right? That's what we should be asking as we read the story. And a lot of us know where the story's headed, but but we have to sort of go back and read it with fresh eyes and say, is it Moses? Is is this the one through whom these, and so far, not off to a great start, right? He's murdered, he was a wanted man, now he's being called, he doesn't want to go, he's old, he's, he's tired, he doesn't want to participate, but God convinces him to go and empowers him to save his people. Look at chapter four, verse 21. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart, his heart, so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my, what? Firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. This is is how God is describing his relationship with Israel, that they are collectively his firstborn son. They are, they are the son through, him, through whom his heritage is going to be put forth, through whom his promises, through whom his blessings are going to go. I've chosen them. I have a plan for them. I have a destiny for them. I have an inheritance for them. They are my son, and you will let them go. And if you don't let them go, then your firstborn son will die. 
And in that culture, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but in that culture, your firstborn son especially is the one through whom your life is continued, is perpetuated. That if your firstborn son is dead, it essentially means you're dead, you're cut off, because that's the one through whom your line was going to be carried out. And so for Egypt's firstborn sons to all die, which of course is what is going to happen eventually, because Pharaoh's heart is hardened, because God's word and God's power hardens Pharaoh's heart, and he decides, so it's a little bit of God acting and saying and speaking and declaring and Pharaoh choosing, but Pharaoh's heart is hardened, and his not just his personal firstborn son, but the firstborn sons of Egypt die. And it's almost like, it's almost like this is a death sentence for the people. Uh, but, but God declares and says and describes Israel as his firstborn son. Of course, Moses goes to Egypt and he says, God says, let his people go. There's sort of some back and forth, right? Pharaoh sometimes says, okay, I think I'll do it. And he changes his mind. No, never mind. You need to stay. And, and there's this back and forth. There are 10 plagues, right? 10 plagues that God, God unfolds on the people, punishes the, the Egyptians with. And what is God doing with these plagues? What is God demonstrating with these plagues? His what? His power, right? His power. Specifically his power, not just over the the mightiest nation in the world, it's that, but more importantly over... Nature. Okay, nature, that's true. Their gods, gods, right? All of their gods. All of their gods. Their gods of the sun, as the darkness unfolds. Their darkness over, fro- or their God over the frogs, their God over the water, their God over the Nile, their God over, you know, whatever. God is demonstrating that he is the true and living God and that their gods are powerless before him and that these are his chosen people and they will be set free. They will be rescued. So God is demonstrating over and over again his judgment on them until finally, and this is what was always expected. It wasn't like, well, there could have been five plagues, but, you know, we had to go to ten. No, this was what was always going to happen. There were always going to be ten plagues. And what was the final plague? The death of the firstborn, just as God said it was going to be. And, and with that death of the firstborn, there's this, there's this event that we call Passover, right? The Passover. Look at Exodus chapter 12, verse 11. God is describing to Moses, not just what they will do that night, that night when the angel of death goes through that area and kills all the firstborn children because of their rebellion, because of their sin, not just what that is going to happen, but what the Israelite people, the the Hebrew people needed to do to be protected from that death. Verse 11, in this manner, eating the meal, you shall eat it, the lamb, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. Sorry, this is Exodus 12, 11 and 12. I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood of the lamb shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. 
So again, as we said, through all of these plagues, but especially in this last one, God is demonstrating his power, his justice, right? His justice, not, not just in punishing. Sometimes we think about justice, we think about punishment. There's that, but justice in he's setting these people free. Now, you could read this and think, oh, poor Egyptians. Oh, that's too bad. I mean, that's, that's really sad what's happening. And I guess that there's part of that that's true. But if you were an enslaved Hebrew, you probably wouldn't think poor Egyptians, right? These people have, have unjustly for hundreds of years enslaved these people and refused to let them go. And God demonstrates his power and his justice and his triumph over the gods of Egypt. Your gods are not real. Your gods are not powerful. God is the true and living and powerful God. And he's also demonstrating his love, isn't he? Now again, you could say, well, yeah, his love for the Israelites, his love for the people of Abraham. But if you, if you read this story in light of the whole entirety of scripture, it's not just his love for Israel. It's his love for Israel, but also how Israel is going to be his instrument through which all of the nations of the world will be blessed, including Egyptian people, including Midianite people, including Moabites, and including, all, including Canaanites, including all of these people and their descendants. God wants to bless all of these nations, and he has chosen Israel to be the instrument through which he's going to bring these blessings. And because he's chosen them, Nobody's going to get in his way, and nobody is going to keep his people, and nobody is going to stop him from doing what needs to be done. Now, the Exodus event, this rescuing event that happens right here, and the Passover meal, the night before they're rescued from slavery, as they eat this meal with their, with their traveling clothes on, staff in their hand, belt around their waist, shoes on their feet, ready to go, and then coming out of slavery and being free. This is an event that does and should shape their identity forever. And when God gives them the law in the wilderness, and God tells them, this is how you are to behave now that you're a rescued people, this becomes the moment that shapes their identity, that says, don't you ever forget that you were enslaved. Don't you ever forget that you were strangers. Don't you ever forget what I did for you. Don't you ever forget how I rescued you. So this event shapes them not only so that they live with gratitude, but also so that they themselves don't become Egyptian-like and oppress other people and enslave other people. Because they're supposed to remember you were slaves and you remember what it was like. So you have to treat other people the, the way you want to be treated or the way you would have wanted to be treated. And then not just for that specific generation that came out of slavery, but the Passover became a meal that when they ate it year after year after year after year, it wasn't just that they were remembering that night, it's that every generation became a subsequent participant in that night. That's the beauty of a meal, isn't it? Because it isn't just, hey, gather your family around once a year and tell them the story. It's let them participate. Eat the lamb. Eat, eat the bitter herbs. Drink the wine. Remember, remember 
who we were, remember who we are, remember what God has done for us, remember this rescuing, remember this rescuing and participate in it. And so generation after generation after generation became participants in the Exodus. They became the rescued people. Yes, they weren't personally there. It was their great, 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 great grandparents. But as they took the Passover meal year, year after year after year, they became part of this night. This night where they went from being slaves to being liberated, to be free, to be God's chosen people that God chooses and says, I have a destiny for you. I have an inheritance for you. I have a blessing for you. And so this shaped, should have shaped the way that they always thought about themselves, about others, about God, about their destiny, about their past, about their future. Now, sort of understanding that context, then we start to look at the New Testament. And then we see Luke chapter 22. And Jesus is about to be betrayed. And what is the final thing that he wants to do with his disciples? Passover. Passover. It's very important that it happens this time. It's very important that Jesus is betrayed at this time. It's very important that right before he's betrayed and right before he's executed, they eat the Passover meal because he begins to reorient this Passover meal around himself as a way of saying this that's about to happen is the new exodus. The new exodus. In fact, it's the exodus that the first exodus was pointing forward to. I don't like to talk in terms of spiritual and physical. Well, the first exodus was physical and the second exodus is spiritual. No, 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 no. It's all, it's all both. It's both. It's spiritual and it's physical. This involves body, Jesus's body, and someday our bodies as we're raised from the dead. But keep reading. Luke 22, verse 14. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is finished in the or fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this, divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup, that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Just like the people of Israel went from slaves to being free, went from being oppressed to being God's chosen rescued people and how they had a covenant with God. It was like, it was like God had a, a, one of the metaphors is as father and son. One of the other metaphors is as husband and wife this covenant relationship. And when they came out of, of Egypt, they were rescued. And of course, Pharaoh tried to pursue them again. And where did they go? The Red Sea, right? Which was crazy. Why are you, why are you standing at the edge of the sea? There's bad guys chasing us. What are we going to do? And of course, God splits the sea and they walk across on dry ground. And then the enemies of God, the armies of Pharaoh are drowned in the sea. And then as they go into the wilderness, what's the first thing God does with them? He gives them his... Law, the stipulations, this is, this is what it's going to look like for you to be in covenant with me. I picked you, not because you're good, not because you're right, not because you did some amazing thing, you were the best slaves in the whole world, not because of any of that. 
but because I made a promise to Abraham and I don't break my promises. And so you're my chosen people. And because you're my chosen people, because I rescued you, I bought you, you're mine, I purchased you. You were, you were nobody, you were, you were enslaved and I rescued you, you belong to me. And it's my people who belong to me and who are grateful to me for what I've done for you. Here's my law. Keep this law and you'll live. You'll live and, and I'll be your God and you'll be my people. It's going to be great. It's going to be wonderful. Of course, the first thing that they do, worship a golden calf, right? And they, you know, from the very beginning, you know, we, we keep thinking, this family, God, this family. And God says, yes, this family, this is the one. And do we see Jesus is doing the exact same thing? Now, not just with the ethnic family of Israel, but for all humanity, for all of the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. Now, finally, all of these blessings and promises that we've been waiting for as we've read through the Old Testament, the story of the Exodus. Jesus is saying the story of the Exodus is finding its fulfillment in me, in me. This, this bread that you eat, it's my body. This, this wine that you drink, this cup that you drink, it's my blood. And it's my blood of this new covenant that I'm making with you. Just like God made a covenant with the people of Israel. Jesus making covenant with his people. He's about to rescue them. He's about to save them. Not going to be slaves anymore. They're going to be a free people. And as a freed people in a covenant relationship with God through the blood of the lamb. Like the blood on the, the doors of the houses of Israel in the Passover night. His blood is going to be poured out to seal his people. Say, you're mine. I bought you rescued you with my own blood. When you eat this meal, you're remembering who I am and what I've done for you. And do you see how even as we continue to eat the meal, we're not just remembering, we're participating. We become participants like we were there that night because it wasn't just our grandfathers who were rescued. It's me who was rescued. And it's the blood that continues to be effective to rescue God's people. Now, when we talk about being rescued and liberated, saved from slavery, the, the logical question is, well, if, if an unsaved person is a slave, to whom are they a slave? Who is reigning over them? Who's the Pharaoh in this ultimate picture? Who's the ultimate Pharaoh? Who's the Pharaoh of Pharaohs? Who's the, who's the evil, the darkness, the power behind that initial power? And look at what Hebrew says. There's so many passages we could turn to, but Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Here's what the Hebrew writer says. He says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he's explaining Jesus and him becoming flesh and dying for us. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is who? The devil and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Again, the Hebrew writer isn't, there's no, there's no passage in the Bible, we could argue about this later, I, I know this will bother some of you, but there's no passage in the Bible that talks about spiritual death. The Hebrew writer isn't talking about spiritual death. The Hebrew writer is talking about death and how you're afraid of it. And how every human being on the face of the planet who has ever lived is afraid of death. Why? Because they know it's coming. 
and they know that there's no rescue from it. They know that they're going to die and that they're going to stay dead and they're terrified. And nearly every decision that they make is going to be shaped in one way or another because of the fact that they are slaves to this fear, this fear of death. That isn't an unfounded fear, it's a real fear. Sin and death reign over us. Here's how we might put it. Here's the enslavement of humanity. First, sin that was first introduced by whom? Adam. So sin that was first introduced through Adam is the means by which we all became slaves. Right? Paul's going to talk more about this in Romans 5 and 6. So sin is how we became enslaved in the first place, first through Adam, and then sin spread to everyone, and we all participated. You did it, I did it, we all did it. And so because we've all sinned, we're all slaves to sin, and therefore we are all, we are all subject to death. And death is like the appointed slave master. You saw even in the story of the Exodus that that the taskmasters were given rule over the people. Pharaoh was in charge, but then he set taskmasters over them. And death is the taskmaster that's over humanity. We're enslaved because we chose to sin. And because we sinned, death is our slave master over us. And then the devil is the prince over death. That's what the Hebrew writer says, right? The one who has the power of death, that is the devil. The devil is over, prince of death, and death is the slave master of humanity. And again, you don't have to be a spiritual person to understand this. You could be a secular person and understand it. You could be an atheist and believe this, that you're going to die. And you're a slave to that reality slave to that reality. And how many of our decisions are made because we know that that day is coming? And the Hebrew writer says, a lifelong slavery, from the moment you first become aware of the fact, I'm going to die, then you live under that shadow of death. And the one behind that is the devil. Number four, the fear of death is like a lash for our backs and chains for our hands and feet, isn't it? The fear of death is like a lash for our backs and chains for our hands and feet. And every single human being, it doesn't matter if you're rich, it doesn't matter if you're poor, it doesn't matter if you're smart, it doesn't matter if you're foolish, it doesn't matter what language you speak, it doesn't matter what country you live in, this is the reality that every human being finds themselves in. I'm going to die. And that reality haunts us. And so much of what we do, how we fight each other, how we're afraid of each other, how we're scared of each other, how we say horrible things about each other, how we break up into our own little tribes and groups and try to stay away from other people, it's all because of this. We're slaves to this reality. And that fear is like a whip to our backs and like chains on our hands and feet. And finally, humanity is enslaved not only to the consequences of sin, but also to the vicious cycle of obeying sin's desires, right? It wasn't like we just became aware of it and said, oh, okay, sin is bad. That's why I'm afraid of dying because I'm gonna die and I'm gonna stay dead because of what I've done. I I think I'm gonna stop sinning. Nope, you're in. You're in. You started playing the game. You're in. And it's a vicious cycle where now you're not just a slave to the consequences, You're a slave to repeating this over and over and over and over again. And even when you try to do good things, it really is still serving sin and death. 
So when we say Jesus saves us, what do we mean by that? When we say Jesus rescues us, we should mean something like this. Like Israel passing through the sea, Jesus leads us into the waters of baptism where we find forgiveness and cleansing and pardon for our sins. And that's important because it was sins that were the basis of our enslavement in the first place. So if we're going to be free from slavery to sin and death, we have to be forgiven. And baptism, because of the blood of Jesus, is like this cleansing moment where we're cleansed, we're pardoned, we're forgiven, we're acquitted. And God says, not guilty. Not guilty. Not guilty. The sentence that was against you of death, I'd commute your sentence. It's gone. You're done. You're pardoned. You're acquitted. You're free because of what Jesus has done for us. And like God's triumph over the gods of Egypt, Jesus went toe-to-toe with death and triumphed over it, right? This is the final enemy. Jesus demonstrated you are weak and nothing. And he defeated death by being raised from the dead. Number three, his redemptive work will be complete when sin, death, and the devil are drowned like Pharaoh's army in the lake of fire. That's what Revelation pictures, isn't it? One day, all of these enemies are going to be thrown into the lake of fire. And God will be triumphant and victorious over all his enemies. 1 Corinthians 15 says the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Again, we're not just talking quote-unquote spiritual. This is my body we're talking about. This is your body we're talking about. God is going to raise your body from the dead, and he is going to destroy death itself. Number four, knowing this will be the outcome, the sting of death's lash and the weight of death's chains have already been taken away from redeemed people, right? The sting has already been taken away. That's what 1 Corinthians 15 says, so that now we mock death. It isn't that we like it. We still hate death. In fact, I like to say nobody should hate death as much or fear death as little as Christians. I hate it. I hate it. I hate what it is. I hate what it does. I hate when it kills people quickly. I hate when it kills people slowly. I hate death. It robs us of the people that we love. And it is an unwelcome intruder in God's good world. But we can mock it because it no longer has power over us. Because when Jesus takes away sin, he takes away the power. He takes away the sting of death. Because we know this is the outcome. Your days are numbered, death. Your days are numbered, sin. You're going to be destroyed. You're going to be drowned in the lake of fire. Number five, the redeemed are free not only from the consequences of sin, but also from the vicious cycle of obeying sin's desires, right? Not only are we slaves outside of Christ, not only are we slaves to the consequences of sin, but we're, we're slaves to repeating it over and over and over again. And then Jesus, if he rescues us, then he rescues us not just from the consequences, but from the obeying. I don't have to obey you anymore, sin. I don't have to live by the flesh. I'm not just, a, I'm not just an animal who lives by his instincts. I don't have to do what I feel like doing do what God wants me to do now because his spirit empowers me and dwells within me. This is, uh, we don't have time. I wish we did. I I had it all. Look, look, I I have it right here. See? Yeah. Yeah. Read the whole thing. I was even going to read more than that. That was trimmed down, y'all. But but take those five things of enslavement and five things of redemption and then go and read Romans 5 and 6. 
Because this is what Paul talks about. This is what freedom looks like. And then he, he says, listen, both in Romans and in Galatians, you're free. Not, not free to go live like you were living before. How dumb would that be? What? You're not free. If you're an Israelite who just got out of Egypt, you're not free to go back to, go back to Egypt. Why would you go back to slavery? You're free to live this new kind of life. So that's my encouragement for us is live as liberated people. The Exodus was supposed to be this moment that shaped Israel's thinking forever and a moment that they continually participated in through the Passover meal. And for you and for me, the baptism is our crossing the Red Sea. It's our, it's our liberation moment. You're set free, not just from the consequences. You're set free right now because you have this knowledge of what's going to happen to sin and death. You can mock it if you want to. You don't have to live in obedience to it anymore. Now you can live in the freedom that the Spirit of God gives you. This is, this is who we are, a liberated people, a freed people, the people of promise. You are the reason. You are amongst the people who are the reason God rescued Israel from Egyptian slavery. He rescued them so that through them he could bring his son and rescue the whole world. And you are the world that God has rescued. So live as liberated people. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for setting us free from sin and death. Father, we pray that you help us to walk in the Spirit, by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit, and be filled with the Spirit, to live as liberated people, live as people who remember constantly that we were enslaved, but that you have set us free by the blood of your own Son. Father, we pray that you help us to live with our eyes and our hearts fixed on that reality. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.